0: Welcome to Police in Ireland, the podcast that seeks to capture the experiences people have with the police. I'm Dr. Vicki Conway, and I'm passionate about listening to people from all different walks of life, about how they experience our police on Garda Síochána. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and rate us. Head to patreon.com, find Tortoise Shack, and support us in bringing all of this content to you.
1: he kept repeating himself over and over my life is, it's over, it's gone what am I going to do he was extremely distraught he was covered in pepper spray from head to toe he had a limp, a very bad limp he had um, abrasions on his back, his finger and the top of his forehead and he kept repeating himself over and over again it's over, my life is finished that's it, it's done
0: This week, we are speaking to Pat and Catherine Barry. Their son, Stuart, died by suicide in March of 2017, at the age of 18. As they will outline, Stuart had suffered from mental illness for many years. Local Gardaí were well aware of this and had assisted the family previously. But towards the end of February 2017, while in crisis, Stuart was arrested. The family maintained that Stuart was assaulted by Gardaí and that his duty of care was breached. We've discussed concerns around the duty of care before in our episode, A Voice for Nile, but Stewart's family present a very different situation of ongoing mental illness, which the Garda were aware of. Their story raises questions of what the Garda role is when dealing with someone in mental health crisis. We speak to Dr Ian Cummins of the University of Salford to help explore what that role should be. Ultimately, there is a larger question of whether the state is placing too much responsibility on guardi, but we must still examine how they fulfil the duties they currently have.
1: Stuart, Stuart was born in 98. Um, he was a fantastic baby. He, he, you know, got to all his milestones and he, you know, clever young boy going to school, etc. Uh, full of fun, loved to explore things and... Um, always curious really curious about everything which in turn turned out to be quite a worry in the end but he he was fun loving he had a fantastic personality always joking around and extremely mannerly and very um, everybody loved stuart everybody had a great time for him you know he had ambitions he loved flying he uh, loved the water loved fishing kayaking um, had absolutely fantastic summers um, in Carthard Daniel made great friends down there they now do um, kayak racing every year in memory of Stuart which is which is great
2: you'd want to come over with you you couldn't you couldn't if you were trying to get away on your own, like, Stuart came for meals with us, came away for weekends with us because he'd be climbing out the window with his bag packed watching you, and you um, just, you know, he wanted to be with you all the time, and um, I always looked at it as a privilege that he wanted to spend so much time with us, you know, even though at times, like, <laughs> you thought know, it was a pain in the ass. I remember the time I ran the leg of the marathon, and we were all meeting for a meal, and, like, everyone just expected to see Stuart with us anyway, because that's the way it was.
0: Catherine's mother died when Stuart was 11. She had lived with them for eight years and she and Stuart had been extremely close. The impact on Stuart was immediate and drastic.
2: She died in February um, and by Christmas time of of the same year he was after starting in GCC and he was on the Ouija board and to make contact with her and... He was rowing, he was very good at the rowing with Shandon Boat Club at the time and um, he used to, I always say, every time I go down to the shop you get me deodorant, I need deodorant um, because he was training a couple of times a week with them and then on Saturday and on Sunday he'd be out in the water like with them and uh, he, he was at a competitive level, he, went to the, he used to do competitions with, with um, Shandon Boat Club and um, I thought nothing of it but like he was using the aerosols as, you know... Um, it was hard to take I couldn't understand what was going on you know he went from this happy-go-lucky to very withdrawn and spending a lot of time in his room and you know all of a sudden he was kind of um, after withdrawing an awful lot from from us as a family really you know and um, he never came back really you know just but like tried everything at the same time and you know he like everything you put something up in front of him or you know I couldn't fault him as regards engagement and he would talk to you about a lot of things, you know, um and he still used to get up and function and go to school and but I got the phone call from the priest and the counsellor this particular day to say that um there was signs on his he'd slide robes in his bedroom. They're literally paw marks, but he was completely psychotic. He said that, you know, that he wanted to know what they meant that he was he read that that he was to take his life down the woods and I suppose it was very hard, I mean, I took him out of the school and straight up to the doctor and we kind of did a lot and he was within he was admitted into hospital for a week in the mercy. It really was an uphill battle for him, and they were very concerned about him, but you know he he went into CAMS, and like, you know, there was nothing that he didn't attempt or try.
0: CAMS is the child and adolescent mental health service which specialises in treating young people with mental illness and difficulties. CAMS is somewhat infamous for its waiting lists. In June of 2020, there were over 500 children on the waiting list for the Cork and Kerry region alone, a quarter of whom had been waiting over a year. What is incredibly striking, listening to Pat and Catherine, is that Stuart was a child who wanted to get better. He engaged with every single service made available to them. Pat rattles off the names of centres and services like they are shops we all go to on a weekly basis, CAMS, the Ashling Centre, Cork Life, Arbour House, Jigsaw, St Michael's, Cree Stewart Stuart tried and wanted help and had hopes for the future. He moved to the Cork Life Centre for School for the Leaving Certificate with the aim of studying marine engineering at university. By this time he was also drinking.
2: Stuart was at that point uh, and it was proven after that he was at that point because um, we kind of noticed ourselves. Now, he was drinking down top of heavy medication for his depression and his anxiety because, you know, he was gone from... He was with St Michael's at the time then as well. And, um, you know, his mental health was... was, I suppose the first time I realised that mental health was Stuart's biggest problem was, you know, the fact that Stuart was in the Ashton Centre a couple of times, I went up to Creenua, it's just giving something back to Ashton after what it did for us and I was in the, um, the little uh, lodge off the treatment centre and I was in there for a weekend, I'd hand over my phone and and I suppose that really opened my eyes, I, it changed me completely afterwards. Um, but basically, it was for counselling for us as as the parents. Now, Stuart wasn't in the treatment centre at the time, but I suppose that's the kind of house that Stuart came from because, like, there was never raised voice. There was no. There was no. We talked about everything with Stuart. There was no. Um, there was never a, a time where you'd completely, because you, we knew, we knew like that Stuart was a very vulnerable kid. And like we knew, like we had done Strength in Families courses, we had done everything that was put in front of us, we did, because everything in front of Stuart, he did. And, um, you know, he knew and we knew. And
0: I think it's pretty clear. You could not encounter two more committed, open, engaged parents who did everything they could to help Stuart in his battle.
2: He really was so popular with so many people. Like, And as I said, even over in Arbour House, the way that they, if they couldn't get somebody to do something, like Stuart never missed appointments over there. You could count to one hand over the five years the appointment of appointments Stuart missed. And every time he did miss an appointment, he felt so bad about it, you worried about him. You know? I, I know like Jigsaw used Stuart an awful lot. Every time they come down from Dublin for interviews, they'd always requested to have Stuart on the interview panel. And I remember, one morning he was um, he was asked to go on this interview panel again, and he was his anxiety was through the roof the same morning, and I was struggling to get him together. So I eventually got him out to the car, and he was tying his belt, and he broke his belt, and he said, "That was it. I'm not going. And you know, I can't, I can't go over there anyway. That's not great this morning." And so I just rang um, the principal in the life centre. And I just told him what was after happening and he had trained, organized someone else to go down and what have you. And Stuart tried to take his life that night, took an overdose that night, spend the night and sat And that was typical of Stuart. That was the way, he, like, if you let people down, it just ate him up. You know, he had no coping skills to letting people down.
0: Catherine feels so strongly about the level of mental health care received.
1: Stuart was always, you know sent back home um, and on one particular occasion and this is where I, I'm really cross one particular occasion it was the 10th of May it was 10 months prior to Stuart actually um, taking his own life Stuart um, was after having an argument um, with his grandfather that evening um, Stuart uh, left the house um, couldn't contact him and um, about two o'clock in the morning, it got a knock on the door um, guard the ambulance, etc. Um, Stuart had been cut down from a tree um, very close to our own home. He was brought into A&E. We went straight up, myself and Pat, and he was lying in a room in um, a brace, a body brace waiting for um x-ray MRI to see if there was any damage done. Stuart was after fusing two bones in the back of his neck. Um, thankfully, he, you know, that was the only damage as such that was done at the time. You know, it was just that the, he couldn't swim and he couldn't go into any form of um, kind of physical pee or do anything like that due to the the injury. And then, um so medically, he was cleared to go home. Um, but we had to wait for um, Can's doctor to come and talk to Stuart and to talk to us. We both had to attend because he was still under the age of 18. He was 17 at the time. Um, so the doctor arrived and um, asked Qu- Stuart all the usual questions that are asked all the time. Are you suicidal? And I mean, this is a boy now who just been cut down from a tree 16 hours earlier. Are you suicidal? Which was a bit kind of Anyway, he said to me, Mum, what would you like me to do with your son? And I said, I want you to find a bed somewhere, anywhere for my son and to help him because this is not normal behaviour. This is not the first time that this has happened. And I am so scared for him and for what might be. And I need you to find somewhere to put him. And his answer to me was, have I done a parenting course? And that was it, and Stuart was sent home. Now, Stuart um, received an appointment to go to the urgent care, um, the crisis care centre here in Cork, and he attended it. He met with the, the, there was three members of staff there at the time. And they called myself and pat in and they said, um, I'm sorry, but your son doesn't qualify for our care. And I said, why? Because he's attending, um, he's attending school and he's attending um, an addiction program. And I said, OK, I can sort that in five minutes with two phone calls. Please, you have to do something for him. And no, was the answer. We'll try and get him into um, an outpatient's appointment. And that was it. Ten months later, Stuart um, took his own life. And there was no help whatsoever on the mental side of things for Stuart. Government initiatives tell us to reach out to ask for help. The Barrys
0: did and no one helped. At this point, Stuart was on medication but no programmes for his mental health. He was getting good support for his addiction issues but no help to address the underlying mental health illness. He had a dual diagnosis, where addiction and substance misuse is often used to cope with the pain of the mental illness, but that underlying problem was not being addressed. One consultant described Stuart as a deflated balloon looking
1: to pump air into himself.
0: Did he get in trouble with the guards at all?
1: Stuart got in trouble um, with the guards on one occasion. He had a guard liaison officer for... he was... I don't know, was he 16 at the time? Maybe 15, 16 at the time. And he had been um, accused of throwing a stone at a car. And um, so Stuart was was given a liaison officer and so on. And Stuart, that was it. That was all that ever, that the guards ever came to Stuart's attention, you know, or Stuart came to their attention. Um, that was it. Stuart was never in trouble with the guards.
2: When they came to, took statements of the fella that was in the car that alleged that he saw Stuart throw the stone I remember coming home from work I dropped out of home to come home and I, they, were, they were just after arriving with the statements and again it would be Stuart's kind of um, he couldn't understand the the statement at all because The guard was reading out the statement, but Stuart was taking it that the guard was accusing him. And I was, look, I was there because I was able to say to him, Stuart, no, the guard is only reading the statement. He's not actually accusing him of doing it. And that was where where Stuart had the huge visual perception problems. He didn't understand what was being said. He didn't understand what he was being accused of. He couldn't understand that they were only reading the statements. He actually thought it, that the guards were accusing me of throwing the stone and um I know one time he was missing and he was just after a suicide attempt and he, he he was out very late and we both panicked. There was a full search put out for him and they actually asked me, could I call to houses of people that I knew myself while well, they were out searching, which I did, and thankfully we located him the same day. But it was basically us getting in contact with the guards and the guards being in contact with us.
1: The only time that the guards were ever called to the house was if Stuart was missing, that we would have called them ourselves. When he left the treatment centre, we would tell the guardie, the, or a local community guard, that Stuart had been discharged due to um, you know, a suicide attempt. We were extremely open to the guardy about Stuart. He didn't like it very much. <laughs> but we we were an open book with the Gardie.
2: We, like we always had a good relationship with the guards. Stuart was popular with a lot of the guards, to be fair, because they all knew he was genuine in his problems. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I couldn't say it was a bad relationship because we were an open book with them. Now, as Catherine said, Stuart probably didn't like a lot of that, and we were so open with them. And, you know, um, but... Like you know he, he was well got with the guards himself, though do you know what I mean? There was no um, there was no trouble with the guards, like
1: they were always extremely helpful and you know, and always did the best that they could in in whatever circumstance was was given to them. and the time that Stuart had been the first time that Stuart had been cut down from the tree, we had asked to um, meet with the guards that that did this for Stuart. Um and saved his life basically and he called to our home and we thanked him very much and we spoke to the superintendent at the time and you know gave him our praises of you know how he dealt with the situation and so on and we were extremely thankful now that was 10 months prior to to taking his own life you know so our relationship with the guards at the time was you know it, it was fine. There was no issue. We never had an issue. We couldn't, ne- you know, they, our community guards would ring us. He rang us after the time that George was cut down and asked us, is there anything he could do to help? You know, which is which is great. And, and, and we knew we had the support of the Gardaí at the time, you know, which was fantastic. So what had happened after that then is is where everything went, you know, pear shaped.
0: Things were different, however, in February of 2017, when a call was made to a guard station to report two men dragging wheelie bins around an estate.
1: Stuart hadn't been in a very good place. So um, Stuart had gone out um, and he was with a friend um, and they had been drinking. And um, Stuart said to us afterwards that he was down in one of the estates here and these four people came along, and he asked them for a light and they said they didn't have one and There was an altercation between the four people and Stuart and they called the guards now Stuart told us afterwards that he didn't realize that they were the guards because there was an it was an unmarked car, and the headlights were shining in his eyes, so he didn't know who who it was he thought that it was one of the four people that had called friends to come and help them, OK? So he did not realise at the time that it was a Garda. And he he tried to assault the Garda because he didn't know at the time it was a Garda and he was he was intoxicated. Um, they deployed pepper spray. Stuart was arrested. He was brought to um, Mayfield Garda Station. And... Um, Stuart came home at five o'clock and he kept repeating himself over and over. My life is, it's over. It's gone. It's over. I can't do this. My life is finished. What am I going to do? He was extremely distraught. Um, he was covered in pepper spray from head to toe. He had a limp, a very bad limp. He had um, abrasions on his back, his finger and the top of his forehead. And he kept repeating himself over and over again. It's over. My life is finished. That's it. It's done. Um. So I just I tried to calm him down. I said, you know, Stuart go in, have a shower, get into bed. I said we'll talk about this after a good night's sleep. Now he didn't seem drunk or anything to me. He was in a very distressed state. So um, on the Sunday Pat brought Stuart to the um to the mercy to um for his injuries and he ended up on a leg brace and he had only 30% movement in his leg. and the abrasions on his back were quite nasty on his forehead and he couldn't bend two of his fingers. It was like as if there was cement in a cut in his fingers. Um So when we got talking to Stuart and he had kind of calmed down, he handed us an envelope, a piece, a corner of an envelope with um, the sergeant's name on it and a telephone number. So that's all that was given to Stuart was a corner of a brown envelope with the sergeant's name on it and a telephone number. And he said that he had to go back on Thursday to be interviewed by the sergeant, which was fair enough. Um, in the meantime, he was very withdrawn in himself. He was, you know, we were trying to reassure him that we would do the best we possibly could for him to make sure that, you know, everything was dealt with properly. Stuart, when arrested, was detained for two
0: hours. I asked his parents how he, with his illnesses, would have coped with that
1: detention. Stuart wouldn't have coped whatsoever in that situation. Um, it was always said to us through um, one of his counsellors that if Stuart ever got himself into trouble, he wouldn't cope at all with it. You know, um, and from a report, Stuart, Stuart was very agitated at one minute; he was extremely apologetic the next minute. Stu- to read the situation, you you know, anyone really would know that this this boy is very distressed and needed some form of medical attention which was never offered to him, Um, Stuart was not able to cope with that situation whatsoever, being put into a cell, being arrested and being put into a cell. Not at all. And he always said it, himself, as well as his counsellor.
0: And was there any risk assessment conducted? There
1: was no risk assessment conducted, nothing. Nothing. Um, As far as we know, they checked the pulse system to see was there any outstanding bench warrants or anything and there was nothing. Now, bear in mind that Stuart had been cut down 10 months prior to this. So why did they not know that Stuart was high risk? You know, where is the communication in all of this? So they let him, they let, they let Stuart down in a way, that there was no duty of care given to him, there was no risk assessment done to him, there was no medical attention given to him. For the Barrys, this is key.
0: The Guardie had direct knowledge that he was unwell and was high risk, but did not seem to bear that in mind in their care of him. As we've discussed before, as long as someone is in a guard station, the Guardie have a duty of care, of actual care, towards that individual. And what's particularly hard to bear is that a slightly different response could have had a big impact.
2: It was actually, you know, um, a decision made with his councillor over in Arbour House that, you know, first chance we get, we need to get Stuart sectioned. But really you need an opportunity, you need the right moment to do something like that. You know, just to do it like without a reason to do it is 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 hard. I think there was an opportunity last to get your section that night. If I was to be quite honest with you, um, but most certainly, that's what would have happened. That's what we would have requested, um, because you know, as Catherine said, look, ten months previous, he was after fusing, two bones in his neck. He was he was high risk. He was high risk, and his solution to every problem, unfortunately, was suicide. Um, he did not have coping skills at all. So a situation like that would have been hugely traumatic to Stuart. Um and I think like to throw someone like him out at five o'clock in the morning not knowing how he was gonna get home, you know, this is a good couple of miles away from his home to, to to you know, I just think like um for me personally very disappointing, you know. Um especially as far as I was concerned, that the only reason that Stuart would have been known to the guards prior to all this really was mental health issues and, you know, should have been well well documented with them, like and I, I, I really struggled to understand how they wouldn't have known who he was, you know, um, I mean, especially as one of the guards is, is, is living close by, he would have known Stuart, like, as far as I'm concerned, he would have known Stuart well, that was very disappointing, because I do think like it was an opportunity missed. Look, you know, who knows, but like, he definitely, we definitely feel we should have been informed that he was above there at the time. You know, and again, it was me had to ring them when he came home. Um, I rang them on the Saturday morning, uh, or the Sunday morning, actually, I rang. And um, just to find out what happened and like it was said to me about you know like he was arrested for this but we do think you know there was other things as well that would damage the cars and I was just thinking oh my god like if them things were said to Stuart that would fully I'd fully understand where he would be so polite one minute and so agitated the next because he would have had no understanding of that and he would have gone from being polite then to being accused of something else that he would have you know it it was it was no doubt it was a very traumatic experience for Stuart what happened that night above in the station
0: Would he have been able to understand what was being told to him that night
2: I would say no I would say no I would say he wouldn't have been able to break that down at all he wouldn't um he wouldn't have understood it at all especially Especially when they were throwing other things at him that had nothing to do with the reason he was arrested, he would have, um, he would have been completely at a loss, I, I feel.
0: This is important because, as we've discussed before, gardi have to communicate both your rights and what is happening in a way that the detainee
1: understands. Where is the duty of care with this person? OK, he turned 18. That doesn't mean anything. Turning 18, that you're an adult now? Are you really? Are you really an adult now if you have mental health problems? You know, surely, better God, somebody would have known that they cut this boy down 10 months prior. Why was that not? Is there a lack of communication there? Obviously.
2: We we went up on the Thursday. He had this piece of paper and, you know, he was to go up on the Thursday to meet the sergeant that was on duty um, the night he was arrested and he was out sick and the sergeant that was with him and they were filling in for him kind of was kind of i i felt read the situation well like he kind of reassured Stuart that you know that there was no charges pending like you know the worst he'd get was an adult caution and that was depending on what the probably the commissioner or or, or the superintendent uh, and not not the sergeant but he said, you know, we'd have to wait to see what he'd have to say about it. But, like, worst case scenario would would have been an adult caution. And um, I felt Stuart kind of left the station feeling a little bit better on himself. So
0: they had the meeting in the guard station on Thursday, but because the necessary officers weren't there, they had to return to the station on the Sunday.
2: Look, it, it wasn't good for him, knowing that he had to go back up under on, on the Sunday and um, he would have had that worry again. Like, whatever where he was kind of reassured on the Thursday, the rope was pulled underneath him again when he had told he would to go back up on the Sunday to meet the sergeant. So, like, you know, it just, it was a short stay of execution, really, for Stuart, that, you know, whatever way he was reassured, he still had to go back up on the Sunday to meet the sergeant in question, and, you know, it, it wasn't ideal for him.
1: Stuart came home on the Thursday and he went straight down to his brother and he said, I'm not going to prison, I'm not going to prison. And then on the Friday, he left the house. He came back. He sat down with me. He watched a film. His form was good enough. Um, On the Saturday, he left at 7.30. And he said to me, "Mom." you were never meant to get the knock on the door. I'm sorry. Now, what he meant by that was through all the um, the addiction services and all the programmes that he'd been in that we all attended, myself and Pat and Stuart, my fear was always getting the knock on the door to say that Stuart was gone, that he was dead. And that's what he said to me leaving at 7.30 on the Saturday evening. You were never meant to get the knock on the door. I worried terribly for him that night and on the Sunday he hadn't returned home. We went to the Garda station on the Sunday to meet the sergeant in question and another Garda. We told them that we were extremely concerned for his well-being. He hadn't returned home, that his mental state was not good and it hadn't been all week. He had, um, I showed the, the sergeant in question, the pictures I had of Stuart and um, the abrasions on his back, his head, his finger, the leg brace, etc. Um, it was dismissed as being burns, which was ridiculous. And they said that they'd um, send out a search party, that they'd send guardy out. We'd give names of friends, etc. and so on, which we did. Just before nine o'clock, we received a phone call from the station to say that they hadn't um, found Stuart and um, we should start thinking about putting a search party together ourselves. They weren't going to put the search party together? That's what was said to
0: us. Pat finds Stuart himself the next morning, close to home.
1: This whole thing, could it have been avoided? Nobody will ever know that. But there could have been care given to him when it was needed. And it was clear he needed help. And we tried everything we possibly could. But it was just the straw that broke the camel's back to be treated the way he was the week before in the station. And Just the lack of care and the duty of care and... Mental illness
0: and policing are inextricably connected. At least a third of those the police interact with have a recognised mental illness. The intersection is very significant, whether it's dealing with a person who is suicidal or violent, trying to question a suspect who is highly suggestible, or dealing with a victim who's suffering from PTSD. Mental illness intersects with all aspects of police work.
3: We really need a range of interventions because obviously the ideal is that people would not reach crisis. Now that's completely unrealistic.
0: Dr Ian Cummins is a former mental health social worker who now researches policing responses to mental health at the University of Salford. He spoke to me about the policing of mental health.
3: In terms of a range of services, um, to start with, we need... um, better mental health literacy, if I can use that term, education around mental health, a whole range of support services, community-based services, uh, improved inpatient psychiatric care, and so on. In a way, we have never had or brought to fruition the the vision of community care. If you go back to the closure of institutions and the closure of long-stay institutions, uh, you'll see that the people who argued for that, they weren't arguing for the situation we have now. They weren't arguing that people with mental health problems would become homeless, would be would be in the criminal justice system, or would be the police would become uh, a de facto provider of mental health care. Far from it. What they're arguing was for, and it might be that this was too idealistic of you, but um, idealism is good. What they're arguing for was... Community based services that would be an alternative to institutions that would be based on fundamental principles of dignity, respect, and so on. So, I think our response to people in crisis has to be at the level of recognizing the distress that people feel, ensuring that they are safe, ensuring that they are treated in an environment that respects their dignity, that doesn't increase the trauma or the uh, crisis that they're going through and not to stigmatize and criminalize them. So in all that uh, I think that we're looking at a complete overhaul really and greater investment in mental health services. Uh, In England and Wales um, the Mental Health Act gives police officers a specific power uh, under section 136 of the Mental Health Act Um, and if police that power essentially allows the police to remove somebody from uh, a public place uh, if they're concerned as to their welfare on the basis of their mental health. So uh, they don't have to make a, have to have a professional diagnosis or anything like that. So this is a power uh, which um, is an emergency intervention. Um, there were some reforms to the use of the power uh, uh, in two thousand and seventeen, which means that. Uh, In theory, police officers have to um, get advice from a mental health professional before they use that power. But this has become, in England and Wales, in a way, a measure of police involvement in mental health services. It's not their only involvement because, of course, people with mental health problems uh, are citizens. So the police come into contact with citizens in all sorts of ways. So, for example, people with mental health problems we know from research are more likely to be victims of crime. Uh, they're victims they're witnesses they're citizens, but the focus is very much on this crisis intervention now what 's happening in England Wales, and uh, I suspect is uh, similar circumstances in other area, uh, other countries is that because of cuts to community services, because of the whole uh, austerity and welfare retrenchment, this has a pincer effect people um, in crisis have fewer community resources to access, therefore the crisis is likely to escalate and in a serious crisis, they're all serious of course, then families, carers will call the police because everybody knows the police's emergency number, they know that they will get a response. It's not necessarily what people want to do, but there are very few alternatives, so there's a concern about that pressure from demand, if you like. There is a concern from organisationally from the police about their role. There's also a concern from individual police officers about their feeling that their uh, lack of training, their feeling that this isn't a role that the police should be involved in, and so on. And then, as importantly as this, for families, carers, uh, People who are in crisis, uh, police involvement is—it's almost inherently stigmatizing. This isn't critici- this isn't critical of individual officers who, if you look at um, the limited research we have around people's experiences of uh, police interventions when they're in crisis, often people feel that the police have given a uh, an appropriate and um, supportive response, if I can use those terms.
0: One of the key questions is who engages with these individuals and how trained they should be. In many jurisdictions, crisis intervention teams have been operating with increasing effectiveness for a number of decades. The aim of these is to develop a safer, more understanding response to people in crisis. The model has been replicated across many parts of the US, Canada and Europe. There are a number of strands to a crisis intervention team response. Interdisciplinary training for both police and mental health professionals is a key step so that all involved have the familiarity to recognise the problems and know who is best placed to deal with it. Police, mental health responders and social workers have different skill sets they can bring to the situation. Secondly there is the availability of teams to respond to a crisis 24-7 with these interdisciplinary experts on site.
3: Certainly in uh, England and Wales what's the way that policies have been changed, or the way that services have been changed, I should say, is to try and establish more support for the police responding to mental health problems, uh, but also try and uh, establish systems which ensure that in the sorts of examples where people are uh, in contact with the police, that is for as short a time as possible, and they then receive appropriate uh, mental health uh, care. Uh, So, for example, Uh, There are a number of systems in England and Wales called Street Triage, uh, where police officers are either working alongside mental health nurses so that, you know, there's a a patrol car or an ambulance and they respond to crises or they get advice from mental health nurses or other staff in the control room and so on and so forth. So. I think there's a recognition that the the potentially negative and stigmatizing impacts of uh, these interventions. Um, I don't think this is a, you know, in the yeah. the work I've looked at. You know, if you speak that's looked at uh, police officers' views on these matters, this is not work the police officers have sought out. You know, it, it, they are concerns about uh, as the general public do about these uh, the potential impact of uh, this work. Police officers are not mental health nurses. We don't want them to be mental health nurses. Um, They don't want to be mental health nurses and so on. So what can we, you know, if you sort of step back and what is it we want police officers to do in these responding people in crisis? My view would be that we want police officers to ensure that people are safe, ensure that other people are safe, and then that that individual gets access to mental health care as quickly as possible. If we could reach that point, then uh, it would be huge progress. Um, Some people would say, well, the police shouldn't be involved in mental health work at all. Uh, Now, I understand that point of view. As it stands, certainly in England and Wales, uh, in terms of these crisis and crisis intervention, they're the only professionals that have these sorts of powers. So we would need very, very significant changes. We'd need a whole new system. And, you know, what do we do before we move to that point? So there's a kind of pragmatism here that we have to to think about. One of the interesting things over the summer in the uh, response to Black Lives Matter's uh, movement uh, and Defund the Police is actually what the Defund the Police uh, perspective really is asking for is greater investment. One of the things it's asking for is greater investment in social community services. Uh, now, in some uh, some uh, areas in the States, they've removed the police from mental health work or attempted to. And actually, I think defund the police um, is a perspective that we should consider more in terms of mental health work because uh, what it's arguing is really that we should be investing in community services and the police... The, the police are being asked to, they're being asked to deal with the problems that, uh, and retrenchment in, the, the problems that austerity has created.
0: This has long been recognised in Ireland. The Bar Tribunal in 2006 was clear that Angarda Siakona should assess its training on mental health, its ability for urgent consultations with medical advice and assistance, as well as the availability of psychologists to respond. The report of the Joint Working Group on Mental Health and the Police in 2009, which was co-produced by the Mental Health Commission and on Garda noted that cooperation was best for all involved, including the police. It reported that interagency cooperation resulted in better outcomes for service users, including less frequent use of restraint and restrictive options of care, increased understanding of illness, enhanced respect for the person in crisis and a reduction in the stigma associated with mental illness. It specifically called for a feasibility study of joint crisis intervention teams to be conducted, naming the HSC as the responsible agency. The limitations of existing community health teams on a 24-7 basis was the primary inhibitor and so the responsibility lay with the HSC to address this. In 2018, the report of the Commission on the Future of Policing found that this recommendation had not, nine years later, been implemented. The Commission made even stronger recommendations noting that, in practice, the majority of police time in Ireland and elsewhere is spent on harm prevention, providing service to people with mental health and addiction conditions, homeless people, children, elderly and other at risk. It's stated that multi-agency crisis intervention teams should be established in all police divisions with round-the-clock response and information-sharing capabilities. Every opportunity should be taken to co-locate emergency services with police at divisional level and mental health and social work teams should be available 24-7. That none of this has happened after all of this time is a damning indictment on our response to mental health. It is heartbreaking for families like the Barrys to swallow this pill who have turned to the police for help because there was nowhere else to go. It's also unfair in our police who are being required to deal with situations which go beyond their professional capacity. After Stuart died, the Guardie did not get in touch.
1: After that, which I found extremely peculiar, was the fact that for the suicide attempts that Stuart had made prior to all of this, we always got a phone call from our community garda or the station just to say, you know, are you OK? Can we do anything for you, etc.? The same people can't look us in the eyes anymore. They didn't complete their job properly. Um, embarrassment, you know. Um, many different ways that you can interpret that. You know, we're living in a relatively small community here, you know, and um, to to us to get all that support prior to all of this, you know, the phone calls and can we do anything, etc., to literally being told you want to start looking into getting a search party for yourselves, not a phone call, nothing.
0: Gardy did arrange an escort for both the removal and the funeral, but didn't attend.
2: Not a garden site, nothing. You know, um, and had no communication with the guards since in any any form really, you know. Which I I, I find disappointing if I was to be honest with you, you know, in the sense that, um, you know, pick up the phone, make a phone call, you know. No, nothing.
0: The Barrys had the wherewithal to request a post-mortem, wanting to confirm there were no drugs in his system and to document the various marks on his body. They then made a complaint to GSOC about Sure's treatment.
1: Stuart died in um Stuart died in March and in September we decided to to contact G and to make a complaint about the treatment of Stuart um the night that he was arrested. Um we had no reason not to believe Stuart that the guards had done this to him, you know, the, the marks on his back, you know, his leg, his his forehead, his finger, everything. Um Stuart Stuart never, Stuart didn't lie. You know, Stuart said it as it was. That was just his way. And he told us exactly what had happened. Stuart had never been in Mayfield Garda station. He never had been. But he was able to describe the steps down at the side of the station. You know, and how would he have known that they were, they didn't bring him in that way according to the report, the GSAC report. They brought him in. Through the side entrance and they reversed the car down but when you drive into the station there's the main door and then at the side of it there's a small little pathway and there are steps there and he said that that's where he was assaulted by the guardy. Somebody said to us you know why don't you make a complaint to GSOC but you probably won't get anything out of it and we said you know what I suppose look we have to do everything we can um, and we did. We contacted GSOC. We had an interview with them. When we had been interviewed with them, we were told that the guardy had 30 days to reply back to, to the complaint that we were making, which didn't happen. 30 days came and went. A lot more time came and went. And eventually, it was December the following year that we met with GSOC with their final report. Their conclusion was it was alleged that Stuart was assaulted Mayfield Garda Station on the 26th of February. Statements have been obtained from all Garda members who interact with Stuart on the night. The two arresting Garda stated that Stuart assaulted them during his arrest and force was applied in order to affect the arrest. There is no CCTV footage located at Mayfield Guard station and no independent witnesses are available.
0: Medical evidence suggested the injuries were not consistent with blunt force trauma.
1: All Garda member deny that Stuart was assaulted during his time in custody. Both Guardy and the sergeant all stated that Stuart was extremely apologetic for his behaviour and appeared genuinely remorseful. The investigation has been unable to identify significant evidence to support this allegation.
0: Despite a direct claim of a lack of medical care or legal assistance, there is no mention of mental health in the report at all.
1: It is alleged that the treatment of our son breached the standards of the treatment of persons in custody regulations and the European Convention on Human Rights Act including among other things the lack of medical and legal assistance. There is no record of Stuart having any injuries that required medical attention during his time at Mayfield Garda station. The Barries feel there are a lot of loopholes in the report. I'm not one bit happy about the findings. There is a lot of things in, in the whole report that don't add up to me. You know, and at the beginning of it, it you know, Stuart was, um, he would be aggressive and then apologize for his behavior. He asked for his e-cig. We had asked to get to, for his e-cigarette and his guard identity card to be returned to us, which we never got back from them. They told us they had him, but they never gave them back to us. To this day, we don't have them. There's no CCTV footage. That's very convenient. You know, there's a complete lack of communication in that guard station. Where was their duty of care given to Stuart? Stuart was sent home with a corner of a brown envelope with the sergeant's name and a telephone number on it. You know, why did they go to the four people who had, you know, said that Stuart assaulted them. There was four of them there, there was one of him. Why did they go down after Stuart had deceased looking for statements? Why? For what reason? There are a lot of unanswered questions there and there are a lot of things that need to be changed, in my opinion, going forward for any parent that would have a child who is um, mentally challenged. The lack of
0: external communication and the lack of risk assessment, are of particular concern to the Barrys.
1: Is that right? I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse. Okay, I'm his mum, and I know what's best for him, you know, at home here and so on, and I can look after him as best I possibly can. But there's no help there. There should be somewhere for them that a parent can bring a child to... And that they're not involved in a normal A&E situation. And the guardy, when they're making arrests like this. I mean, Stuart, was, Stuart, his name isn't even on the Pulse system. But that doesn't mean it shouldn't be there. His name should be there. Because they cut him down from a tree ten months prior to that. Why? Why was that not put in? Then they know exactly that there is a there is a problem here we need to call his parents, we need to get him medically assessed. Just because they looked that he did not have any injuries, he had a major injury that they overlooked. And to me, all of that has to change before there are more people in the situation that myself and Pat and our other two children are in. There was a lost opportunity for us to get our son Sectioned, and to get the help that he really, really needed at the end of the day. Do you, do you blame people? No, you, you can't point the finger of blame at any one particular person. But you know what? You put your faith in, in the Gardaí that they do their job right. But to me, that night, their job was not done right. And now we don't have our son here.
0: This year we should see the publication of the General Scheme of the Policing and Community Safety Bill on foot of the Commission on the Future of Policing. We must agitate to ensure that a requirement to establish, train and engage crisis intervention teams on a 24-7 basis is included in that legislation, and the whole system of the treatment of persons in custody also need to be reviewed to ensure that they reflect current best practice of providing that care, dignity and respect to all individuals in their custody
3: we need to develop a completely different approach to crisis and that might be engaging with the police more about what it is we want them to do, broader society. You know, what is the role? Police officers might not want this role, uh, and I understand that, but it may be that actually we think that, well, who else can respond to some of these crises? So Police officers uh, are trained to deal with people in all sorts of uh, uh, difficult, challenging situations, ones that I would never be able to deal with. Take a step back and think about how do you respond to somebody who is in crisis? What, what do we want to do? Uh, well, ensuring that people are safe, then it's about establishing a relationship with that person, listening to them, showing them respect, treating them with dignity, and so on. And that applies whether you are a mental health nurse, whether you're a probation officer, whether you're a police officer.
0: Thanking Pat and Catherine seems somewhat inappropriate, but we hope that their willingness to speak openly about this helps people to understand the need for reform as it relates to policing and mental health. We're grateful to Dr. Ian Cummins for sharing his expertise. As ever, I'm thankful to Tony Groves and Brian ahead for their work on producing this episode. Next week, we'll be looking at the policing of animal rights activism in the 1990s. Before then, please keep listening and sharing and reviewing. Support the work at patreon.com forward slash tortoise